Hi, welcome to my channel. My name is Lisa Alistway. And on this channel, you will find a variety of inspirational and informational videos. My guest this week is Dr. Sanjay Gupta, who is a consultant, cardiologist, and heart specialist in York, United Kingdom. I will be linking his website and his YouTube channel down below in the description box for your reference. Welcome, Dr. Gupta. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, uh, you have a very famous name. Do, do people ever uh, mistake you for the Dr. Sanjay Gupta that we have here in the United States? Yeah, all the time. And uh, whenever people don't approve of what he's done, I get criticized. And, and when people do approve of what he's done, he gets all the, all the kudos. Oh, he gets all the credit. <laughs> he gets all the credit. That is so funny that you guys have the same name. Um, yeah. I do appreciate you coming on my channel today. This is, I think, a really interesting and a really important topic. Um, people might have heard of it as broken heart syndrome, but the correct terminology is Takasubo cardiomyopathy. Can you break down uh, basically what it is? Yeah, in a simplistic sense, cardiomyopathy, cardio meaning heart, myopathy meaning a disease of the muscle, the muscle of the heart is affected. And Takatsubo refers to a Japanese word for an octopus catcher. And in this, with this particular device, this octopus catcher, you have a container which has a narrow neck and a wide base. And basically the octopus goes in and falls to the bottom and can't clamber out. And so that's a Takotsubo. And in this particular condition, when you look at the heart, the heart resembles that. So the top of the heart will contract, but the bottom of the heart is almost paralyzed and therefore doesn't contract. And so when you look at it, it looks like one of these oyster, uh, the octopus catches. Fantastic. And this is a terminology that came about about 1990. Can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this? Yes, I'm sure that this is a condition that has been around for a long time. In the old days when we used to watch movies, it wasn't uncommon to see a scene where someone gets a bad bit of news and then suddenly clenches, you know, clutches their chest and then they fall down with a heart attack or die. Mm -hmm. And it is thought that Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy is probably something called a stress-induced cardiomyopathy in which some kind of stress um, causes such a release of stress hormones that these hormones paralyze part of the heart and they okay. paralyze that base of the heart. And to all intents and purposes, what will happen typically is that the patient will describe severe chest discomfort, which is generally unwell. They will come to a hospital and the tests would all be in keeping with a traditional heart attack. So their ECG would be abnormal, their blood tests would be abnormal, and they would be told, look, you've had a heart attack. Mm -hmm. In usual heart attacks, however, what you find is that there is a blockage in a blood vessel, which then causes the heart to become damaged. In Takotsubo's, when you look for a narrowing or a blockage, you don't find one. So this is something that looks like a heart attack, but when you go beyond just looking at the ECG and the blood test, you find that there are no major narrowings to explain that appearance and, and the dysfunction. And then what happens is if you then support the patient with medications for a period of up to three months, 
and you repeat the scan, you will find that the heart has normalized. Mm. And it is that normalization which makes the diagnosis of Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy. So usually a lot of people base it just on the appearance, but it's not just that. It is the mm -hmm. appearance plus the um, not being able to identify any other cause for it, plus the improvement and full recovery of the appearance of the heart within a three month period, which makes that diagnosis. Okay, very cool. So you had mentioned, um that is brought about by stress. Can you kind of break down how you get this condition? What, what, what do we know about the people that get this condition? Yeah, a, a certain proportion of patients will uh, describe a stressful event. Mm -hmm. So they will say something like, my partner died, or um, I was moving house, or I got into a really bad argument and I was really upset. Now, no one quite knows whether that in itself is enough to be causing all this. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is a significant proportion of people who come with this who say, actually, no, I don't have a stressor. And sometimes the doctor actually keeps uh, digging and digging and eventually plants something in the patient's head and says, oh, yeah, it could be that or it could be that. And, you know, if you look for stress in our lives, everyone's got some kind of stress. So yes. I don't think we are absolutely certain that there is definitely a stressor. But what we do know is in those patients who are admitted who are very sick for another reason, like at the moment, a lot of patients are coming into intensive care unit with COVID and they become really, really sick. And a lot of them are found to have a weak heart. And whilst many people think that's myocarditis due to COVID, it could also be that some of these people, just because they are so sick and stressed, their bodies are so stressed mm -hmm. that they develop this weakening of the heart muscle. And um, we see it all the time in patients who come in with pneumonia, road traffic accidents, stuff like that. Their hearts will be very weak when they're in intensive care, but when they go home, they get better, they come back, their heart is normalized. So it's not just distress, the negative stress that can bring about this condition. It's also like you stress, the good stress. For example, if you won the lottery, that can be a shock yeah. system and that might actually create the takasubo. Is that correct? Well, that's, that, there's no doubt that there are some publications which have talked about the fact that happy stress can also contribute. Uh, and, uh, and again, I think to myself, you know, maybe we don't have a complete handle on this. Maybe we don't fully understand this. At the moment, it is, I suppose, unfairly painted as broken heart syndrome. You know, it's probably a lot more complex than that. Um, but what is interesting is it tends to affect postmenopausal women. That's interesting. We tend to see it most often in postmenopausal women. We do see it in men as well, but there's like a nine to one ratio of women to men. Wow, and why is that? What's going on with postmenopausal women that put them at such risk? I think, I guess maybe in some ways, female hormones are protective and then, you know, you start getting the depletion of hormones after menopause and that, and we see a lot of cardiac conditions become more prevalent once menopause uh, hits, you know, in postmenopausal uh, women. So I think, um, uh, hormones can be protective in women and there's no doubt about that. Yes, is particularly estrogen. And then when yes. you go through menopause and you stop producing it, a lot of women need to be on their health and on their toes to realize they might have to go on a hormone therapy to kind mm -hmm. of protect against it. Um, something obviously to talk with their doctor. 
Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, you know, in the past, hormone replacement therapy has been painted in a poor light. And there's been a lot of controversy and so, well, you know, but actually all the data at the moment point to the fact that if women need hormone replacement therapy for symptoms of hot flashes, et cetera, then they should have it and not worry about their heart because uh, in general, hormone replacement therapy in that setting offers benefits rather than a disadvantage, at least for the hot flashes, et cetera, mm-hmm. without worrying about, oh, if I go on this, I'll harm my heart. Yes, Uh, but your natural hormones are the best hormones, obviously. Yes. And I know people have heard of studies that um, like if you've had two married people, they've been married 50, 60 years and one of the partners dies. The other one has a a high risk of dying within a matter of months. Yeah. It's again, that shock to the system, isn't it? It could be a variety of things, you know, I mean, it could be that absolutely. You can get a stress induced cardiomyopathy. Uh, but also, of course, you can get depression uh, from the loss of a loved one, and depression adds hugely to a person's morbidity. Uh, and finally, loneliness uh, adds, you know, loneliness is one of the most harmful things, not being alone, but being lonely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So those all contribute. Yes. And I know they've seen this amongst animals. Elephants are known to die of a broken heart, as mm-hmm. I've heard, um, because they have that mate that uh, they, you know, join with. And then if they lose them, you know, they have a broken heart. You know, there is no doubt in my mind that the biggest killer uh, in the world is stress, uh, you know, over and above everything else. So there's a lot of emphasis on things like smoking, etc. But stress is a really big contributor it robs people of joy and it robs them of quality of life and it also probably robs them of length of life yes yes and that's where we have to be very careful with our relationships because they can affect your health who you surround yourself with your partners um they can literally cause you know these type of heart conditions they can, and of course, they will impact on your quality of life badly anyway, right? Mm-hmm. So whilst, um, you know, I think what I'm, what I'm trying to stress here is that as someone who has been in this profession for 30 years now, what I've begun to realize is that there is no magic formula to, a, uh, to guarantee that you're going to live till you're 100. You know, a bad thing can happen to anyone at any time. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps the more important thing is that people should not worry about, oh, my God, what's going to happen to me, but concentrate more on their quality of life now, because then at least you're living, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, If you leave your living till after retirement or when you're 80, well, you may never even get there and you've missed out on this opportunity. So you're right. If you have people around you who actually rob you of happiness, rob you of joy, uh, then the one thing you can guarantee is that your quality of life will improve if you get rid of them. And who knows, uh, your length of life may also go up, but no one knows about that. Uh, But your quality of life improves. And as long as you have a good quality of life, to all intents and purposes, that's what matters to the individual. Mm-hmm, definitely. And you had mentioned uh, depression as a as a risk factor in this as well, not only just menopausal women, but people who struggle with depression and I, I assume anxiety as well. 
those can have also a very detrimental effect and could bring about this condition. Is that correct? I think, um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, it can. I have to choose my words carefully because there is so much anxiety around these days. You know, there's anxiety yeah. everywhere. And I'd hate to spread, I'd hate to make everyone who's anxious think, oh my God, I could have second <laughs> subos because, <laughs> because that would just increase anxiety. And right, right, right. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but I think, I think somewhere we have to start trying to work out why there is so much anxiety about Mm -hmm. uh, because there is no doubt that anxiety and fear don't stop you dying but they stop you living mm -hmm. and Definitely. to my mind you know people need to start questioning well where is all this anxiety coming from because there is tons of it there is tons of it out there mm -hmm. and those patients don't live their lives they're frequent hospital attenders you know, they end up having to take more tablets, which they may not necessarily need. They tend to compile a bigger list of diagnoses on their notes. They tend to be discriminated against by insurers, etc. And mm -hmm. I think somewhere we have to go back and say, well, where is all this anxiety coming from? As to whether um, anxiety causes stress-induced cardiomyopathy, I'm sure it doesn't help. Yeah. Um, but, you know, sometimes you meet the calmest people in the world and they've come in and they've said, look, you know, out of the blue, this has happened. So, again, yeah. I don't have I don't think we have a quite quite have a handle on it. But there's no doubt that depression is a really bad thing. Definitely. Depression is a really bad thing. Yeah. So this this condition is still we're still learning lots about it. It's somewhat poorly understood. Is that safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you why. I'll t There are various things that make me say that this is a very poorly understood condition. The first is this idea that it's all about stress when so many people say, look, it was just a normal day. I had no such problem. Where did it come from? So that's interesting to my mind. The second thing which is really interesting is that, of course, you see, we say that uh, Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy should just normalize in three months. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the definition. When you do a scan three months later, it's normalized. Everything looks fine. But the patient does not feel fine. And that's mm -hmm. incredible because if you then go and ask patients, and there have been studies where patients may still have symptoms almost 20 months down the line or even more, mm -hmm. uh, but their heart looks normal. Mm -hmm. So either our technology is not good enough, either the thing things that we are looking to assess normality are mm -hmm. not sophisticated enough mm -hmm. or is it that uh, is it that it breeds anxiety uh, hypervigilance that kind of thing and that's why the patient doesn't get better but there has been some research where they've made people exercise uh, up to 20 months after their event mm -hmm. when the heart function appears to have normalized on the traditional scans. And these patients still don't achieve that level of exercise capacity that they did before they had their event. So it's very interesting. You know, um, are you familiar with the diagnostic statistical manual that we have here in the United yes. States? So yes. one of the things they're gonna be adding to it is this condition called prolonged grief syndrome. And I wonder if that has some, you know, a play in this, because a lot of times, you know, Grief isn't just something that happens, you know, a week or a couple of weeks. Some people live with their grief for years and the impact that that can have on the body. 
I agree with you. I mean, I think that, you know, grief and PTSD. Yes, yes. Is huge, huge. You see, the problem here is, and I think that's where anxiety comes from. This is my observation, having spoken to so many people with heart palpitations, et cetera. You know, if you think about it, we, we all have, it's, it's a natural reaction to grieve. It's a, re a natural reaction to meet the time to heal. But our system doesn't allow us that anymore. It is seen, you know, it is seen as a sign of weakness. So if you're in a busy enterprise and a parent dies, for example, certainly in my country, you get maybe a week off work. Yeah. And then you're supposed to just get on with it and put yeah. your mind back in it and forget it, put it on the side. But that doesn't sort the problem out. And that grief may manifest in actual bodily sensations mm -hmm. and probably has a very inflammatory effect on our on our system you know I lost my dad earlier this year and to all intents and purposes from day to day I feel you know I'm just functioning I don't I'm not conscious of that yeah but I think in retrospect, when I look at my behaviors, I think, okay, well, that was very unusual for me, what I was doing then, and that, that's very unusual. And now I understand that maybe this isn't something which you can quantify or give, give a shape to and give a form to and say this, you know, it's not a finite, nicely packaged thing. It just comes and goes, comes and goes. And all in all, you know, you're left with uh, sometimes thoughts of uh, hopelessness and sometimes thoughts of elation and sometimes thoughts of just despair. Uh, and I think, you know, you, you don't sleep as well. And I mm -hmm. think all these things have do play a role. You know, you become a lot more, you feel a lot more vulnerable. Most definitely. They, they, they add up, they multiply and the body, yeah, yeah. the body keeps score, you know, as far as what is being Absolutely. done to it. You know, you can't deny that. Um, so what other risk factors? I know we mentioned the menopausal women, uh, maybe a history of anxiety and depression, you know, losing a loved one. Um, but what about medications? Can they bring about this condition? Um, you know, there are certain medications. I don't know whether they can cause Tetsubos as we recognize it. But there are medications that can affect the heart in a way whereby the heart may not work as well. So okay. medications that can uh, sometimes, particularly chemotherapeutic medications, right? Chemotherapy can sometimes affect the heart, cause spasm in a blood vessel. So you see, one of the things is, is it all about when you're, when you're looking at this, is it all about just stress-induced cardiomyopathy, which makes the heart look weak without a blockage or a narrowing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it isn't, you see, you can have spasm in a blood vessel that prevents the blood from getting to the heart. The heart becomes devoid of blood, so it starts dying. Uh, so it looks like a heart attack. You then go and study the heart to look for blockages, but the spasm has gone by then. Mm -hmm. So you think, okay, well, this could be a stress-induced cardiomyopathy because it fits but in those patients when you rescan them in three months you'll still see the damage because the damage was actually caused by a lack of blood causing uh, suffocation and death of heart muscle whereas in stress-induced cardiomyopathy that doesn't happen mm. uh, you could go back to normal so there are medications which can cause spasm uh, chemotherapeutic agents can do that okay so you had mentioned that one of the symptoms that people experience is chest pains 
that, mm -hmm. they, you know, that would be an indicator they're having this, this condition. What other symptoms might we need to recognize? I mean, people can, uh, when you have this, you can have, you can have chest discomfort, you can have sudden breathlessness, mm -hmm. you can feel dizzy, you can black out. And some people, unfortunately, can even die at that time. Wow. Because to all intents and purposes, the heart is paralyzed at that time. So the heart is not doing very much. So a weak heart is not going to get blood out, but a weak heart is also an irritable heart. And so if you go into a heart rhythm disturbance because the heart is already paralyzed, it's already so weak, it's not going to be able to cope and suddenly it'll give up. So Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy is a dangerous condition. Yes. Uh, for the time, for the duration when the heart is weak. Yes. And so people um, obviously are going to have a different experience with it from it being mild to moderate to severe, you know, death. So um, it's all going to depend obviously on other things going on in that individual, like the age, the older you are, you're going to be at a higher risk and, than somebody sure. who is like 12 or, you know, 20. They probably aren't yeah. going to have the same impact. Different. They might have a mild yeah condition or form of it. Is that correct? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think your overall prognosis will always have to factor in who you are. So if you're a young, fit, healthy person who um, develops COVID, for example, ends up on intensive care, very mm -hmm. ill, your heart may weaken, but because the rest of you were strong to start off with, you would cope and it's unlikely you would, you know, if you could recover from the COVID, then your heart would probably strengthen back up and you'll be fine. But if you're someone who has bad kidneys, who has dementia, um, you know, who has an already weak heart, then you go, you become ill. Obviously it's gonna be a more severe illness. And then if you develop something like that, then your organs are already compromised and suddenly your heart suddenly stops or gets paralyzed so all the organs will start will be more likely to fail because mm -hmm. they were already compromised and then something has come along and compromised you even more okay so um when you come in with these conditions and you run tests to determine what it is you start off with it's probably a heart attack until we can see a few months down the road that it wasn't a heart attack yeah, so we would normally do an ECG and that would you would expect that to be abnormal. Sometimes it can be indistinguishable from a heart attack. Mm. And then you would do a blood test called troponin. And troponin is a muscle enzyme that is released from the heart when the heart is in some way damaged or um, stressed. So those you would expect to be up uh, and abnormal. And then we would do, uh, the next step would be either to do an echocardiogram, an ultrasound, a little bit like the scans that women have to have their babies looked at when they're pregnant, uh, where you can look at the heart and the heart will have this appearance of one bit not moving and the rest of it moving, looking a little bit. But that doesn't make your diagnosis. You then have to go and look at the heart arteries and see whether they look clean or not. And if they look clean, then it makes it less, much less likely that the problem was a constriction in the blood or a restriction of blood flow to the heart. Um, so at that point, you start entertaining the diagnosis. Uh, you can do something called an MRI scan and an MRI scan is a very good test because it allows you to pick up dead tissue in the heart. Mm. So on an MRI scan, typically you will not see scar 
in Tekatsubis, but you would see scar in a heart attack, in spasm or something like that. And so that then, again, reassures you that everything is okay. But then you have to wait up to three months to repeat it. And then hopefully that appearance that you've seen normalizes. And so if you get the diagnosis that you have it, what, what medications do you have to be on typically um, and for how long? Well, because until you've seen it resolve, uh, you still treat them as a heart attack initially, right? Because so, so you still end up putting them on things like aspirin and sometimes uh, aspirin and uh, another antiplatelet agent, something called ticagrelor or combining those two. Uh, but more importantly, what you would want to do is you would add in a medication called a beta blocker. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind the beta blocker is it reduces the heart becoming irritable because the heart will struggle to cope with any irritability, fast heart rates, abnormal heart rhythm. So the beta blocker reduces that, but also helps strengthen the heart up. And you would start something called an ACE inhibitor. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are things like Ramipril, Captopril, and Allopril. And that is, again, a medication that has been shown to strengthen the heart up. And these are very effective medications. There's no doubt about it. Mm -hmm. So a combination of an ACE inhibitor, beta blocker, and maybe something called um, um, uh, aldosterone antagonist, uh, so something called spironolactone. These are all medications that work in a way which reduce the burden on the heart and therefore allow the heart to work a little bit easier and therefore allow the heart to start healing. And we would give them. And then when the patient comes back and you've seen things, to, things have normalized, then you're faced with a dilemma. Do you okay. stop the medication or do you continue them? And at mm -hmm. this point in time, we continue them mm. lifelong. Lifelong. That's what I was going to ask if you had to be on it lifelong. Um, well, so for those individuals, you know, the ones that don't die from it, the good news is, is that it's a contemporary, a temporary condition, you know, if you survive it, um, but you may have to be, like you said, on the medication for life. Yeah, I mean, no one quite knows whether you have to be on them, but this is how we practice. And the reason is this, that you have to say, well, you know, everyone goes through a period of stress, you know, stress yeah. is something that everyone has to endure. And there are so many postmenopausal women. So why is it that only some of them get it and others don't? So surely, you know, and sometimes people can have a relatively minor stressor. I, I argued with my boss. Yeah. And otherwise it could be a real kind, of, but there are other people who can go through the death of two loved people in their house and they don't get it. So yeah. somewhere to my mind, it indicates that there may be some kind of genetic vulnerability in certain people. Yeah. So maybe it's not just about the condition, the trigger, but maybe it's also about that person. And that I think is important because if it is about the person, then how do you cover that yes. for the future? Yes, you need to know your family health history tree if you've had family members that have had heart attacks and um, yeah. place you at risk. Um, does, yeah, obesity, does obesity play a factor in this at all? I haven't come across it. I'm not confident that I can say definitely. I mean, I think obesity exposes you to bad health anyway. So I think it is a good idea to work on that because 
you know, whilst Takotsubo is a condition that you can recover from, uh, type two diabetes and uh, hypertension and traditional heart attacks, which are commonly seen in obesity, are non-recoverable conditions. You know, they, they leave you with permanent damage in the heart. And that's why I think obesity should be addressed, but not specifically because I think obesity increases the risk of broken heart syndrome. In fact, a lot of women I come across are actually very slim, very fit, no problems at all. Uh, you know, and suddenly out of the blue, they get it. Okay, so for prevention, they stay on the medication for life. Could they still possibly be at risk for another episode happening? Sure, I mean, I think there are no guarantees. It's unusual. I mean, recurrent Takotsubas is very unusual. So very small percentage of people get it more than once, but it has been described. Uh, and in those people, you definitely want to leave them on medication because otherwise, what are you doing, right? How do you prevent anything? Uh, on medications, I must confess, I haven't come across anyone in my practice who's come in again with another Takotsubas on medication, but I'm sure it's possible. Okay. And how soon can you resume activities um, once you've been diagnosed with this? I mean, I think, you know, it again depends on each um, person that um, uh, most people, if you'd had a traditional heart attack, you know, you can slowly build up and go back to normal by in about a month. Uh, and I would say with Takotsubas as well, I think, I don't think there's any reason why people have to restrict themselves. Most people will restrict themselves because they just can't do it. They'll restrict themselves because when they try and do it, they'll say, I feel breathless, I feel tired. Uh, and, and a lot of people are very anxious about exercising as well when they've had something like that. There's no medical reason why I would say, okay, once you're on the medications that you can't start doing it, but I would always recommend that people do it in a supervised way initially so that, uh, you know, there's someone watching them and you want to build up very gradually rather than just going and saying, okay, you know, I've come out of my heart attack. I've been in, at home for one month today. I'm going to run a marathon. I wouldn't recommend yeah. that at all. I would say, you know, you build up, you start building up with how much walking you're doing. Then as, as time progresses, then you're you know your body's going to allow you to do it, uh, build up. And there's no reason why you can't do whatever you want if your body allows you to do it. The problem is, as I say, a significant percentage of patients say they just cannot do it even several months after the oh, scan wow. has normalized. Wow. Okay. So let's let's talk about prevention. I know that you can't prevent the genetic side. You just have to like mm -hmm. learn your fam family health history tree. Um, you can't prevent the aging process. You can't prevent your gender. You're, if you're a woman, you're going to be menopausal if you live long enough. Yeah. But let's talk about the maybe some of the modifiable risk factors and the, some of the things that would set us up in maybe preventing this to ever happen. I mean, I think I think trying to stay healthy, and uh, I think uh, it boils down to, as you say, the only thing we have in our control is our lifestyle. We have no control over age, genetics, luck. Uh, the only thing we can do, uh, we can only work with lifestyle. So in terms of lifestyle, there is nutrition mm -hmm. and then there is sleep. And that's really, really important. Really important. Uh, exercise and then there's stress management, right? So a lot of people think about nutrition and exercise, but they don't think about sleep and stress. And I think those are very, very important things to try and incorporate in our lives 
at whichever stage we're in. Yeah. Uh, you know, so even if you're a 25 year old and you're full of energy, it's still important in, in terms of getting into good sleeping habits because the cumulative damage, you know, over a number of years of what that is doing is going to be enormous. Uh, so I think that's really important. With nutrition, what I would indicate, what I would recommend, what I would think is that a lot of people think nutrition is about avoiding cake and avoiding, uh, you know, uh, pastry, etc. Uh, but actually, it's more complex than that. Uh, and that is that, you know, a lot of the food that we are fed these days, even healthy food, is adulterated food. It's uh, full of sugar, it's full of additives, it's full of preservatives, it's full of refined uh, processing and all that kind of stuff. And I think somewhere I'm sure that that contributes to our overall decline in health. Mm -hmm. So again, I would encourage people wherever possible to be very careful about um, what they're eating. Uh, again, you know, the problem is if it's FDA approved, it doesn't necessarily mean, oh, it's fine. It's just someone has said it's okay, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I would be very, we're conscious of how much sugar there is in food. And I think sugar is a really big problem. Mm -hmm. uh, Especially for menopausal women. That's- Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely yeah. huge. Mm -hmm. um, so those are really good things to kind of think about with you know what you have control over. Um, mm -hmm. here, we, here we have the American, Can or American Heart Association. So maybe following a heart healthy diet could also set you up to possibly being a prevention factor. Absolutely. I think, uh, I think um, you, you should live a life of moderation wherever possible. Mm -hmm. uh, you should uh, live a life of simplicity where it's, wherever it's possible, because, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the more complicated your life is, the more stressed you become. Yes. Uh, and maybe and the more I depressed, think, the more anxious. Yeah, and like you said, this is, you have some people who are addicted to stress maybe in their 20s, and they go, 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 they're adrenalized all the time, you know, but that stuff adds up. Like I said, the body keeps score. It's when you're in your 40s and your 50s, it can come back to haunt you if you're not careful. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is so, so, so important to just become conscious of the fact that your quality of life is the single most important thing. Mm -hmm. And your quality of life is not really a measure of how much you earn or uh, or what you can afford or you know because all those things all those materialistic things actually uh, in some way they clutter your life up and yep. uh, clutter is very stressful and yep. clutter will lead to will lead to isolation you know a lot of people will have 10,000 things and to keep them occupied but actually they become very lonely because it leads to isolation, social isolation, and that kind of thing. So I would say, you know, there are a million and one ways of dying. And some, somehow, you know, you can spend all your energies directing yourself in one direction and saying, okay, mm -hmm. well, I did, you know, I want to look after my heart, but you can still be hit by a car tomorrow. Yes. So it's really important to try and cultivate that kind of sense of what is it what is the point of this this whole thing you know what is the point here the point is to have to be joyous to have joy in your life mm -hmm. that i think is the point mm -hmm. and as long as you're doing that 
you know, you're living a, a fulfilling life. And if you're mm -hmm. living a fulfilling life, if your life comes to end, comes to an end, well, that's so be it that we have no control over. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what I, you know, a lot of people, what they find is that they spend everything they have working away, working away, taking on loads of stress, ending up in relationships that they, uh, that no longer work. Uh, and then when you get older and suddenly realize, oh gosh, you know, that wasn't what I was after, then your health has let you down and the people who love you have gone away because you never really got enough time to spend with them, etc. So I think just being conscious of that and reflecting on that on a daily basis is a good thing because really, uh, you know, life should be a destination rather than a bridge to a destination. Yes, because I, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in the United States, our healthcare system runs more like a disease care system. They're good at you know the surgery, they're good at the, you know diagnosing, but they're not good at looking at the whole person. And what I mean by that is you know getting into like maybe the emotional and mental health issues that can impact our physical health. And that's yeah. I think that's somewhat dropped in our healthcare system. Well, I think the, I mean, if you think about it, your disease is far more profitable than your health. Mm, yes, <laughs> unfortunately, yes, that's true. You know, and that's, that's the problem. So uh, the, the way, if you think about it, you know, when you look at blood pressure um, uh, thresholds, uh, et cetera, the Americans tend to have, have very low blood threshold pressure threshold so they change the numbers every so often don't they and and if you come to if you ask um, the american physicians they have a much lower cutoff for blood pressure compared to the europeans for example mm -hmm. uh, and the problem here is that well is it that the americans are that different from their european counterparts is it that you can have high blood pressure in america but if you take a plane and come to europe you no longer have high blood pressure what's going on there and the problem is that people are getting sicker the reason people are getting sicker is because of lifestyle because of stress because of social isolation because of depression because of sugar all those things unfortunately those aren't things that are easy to sort out for anyone. So they just say, oh, well, young people are having heart attacks and they've got blood pressures 130 over 80. We need to bring the blood pressure down lower. Mm -hmm. right? And so what does that achieve? Well, more pills, uh, uh, more you know, insurance premiums, etc. Mm -hmm. And the poor patient has never really tackled the problem that was causing their them to be ill in the first place so you have in some ways targeted a symptom which wasn't even really a symptom but you've called it a you've identified it as something you've targeted that you've suppressed the scream from the body saying i'm unhappy mm -hmm. and then what happens a bit like grief uh, is that that will manifest in another way so then that person's blood sugar starts going up and then they say oh you're now diabetic let's push this number down again so now you've got diabetes and high blood pressure but actually again they haven't tackled the problem underlying it so then the person comes in and their cholesterol goes up and now you've got three things so you're taking medications for three things but you're not actually treating the underlying problem you're just suppressing these screens and then um, when the patient turns up with his heart attack then they say oh you know, the reason you have a heart attack is because you have high blood pressure and diabetes and a high cholesterol. 
-hmm. But my argument has always been, then why were you treating all those three things? Wasn't it to prevent a heart attack? So if mm -hmm. I've come in with my heart attack, it doesn't make sense that you say, oh, well, you've had a heart attack because you've got diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, because you were treating me for several years with those medications, which were designed, which you told me were gonna prevent me from having a heart attack stroke. Mm -hmm. So somewhere we have to now face up to that and look into that and say, well, maybe we're either, our medications are simply not good enough or we're targeting the wrong things. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, definitely need more research in this area. In particular, this, this condition that we had mentioned that was so poorly understood. Um, so if somebody was to find out they had Takasudo um, cardiomyopathy, what would be some encouraging words you would give to that person if they found out day one that they had this? Yeah, I think um, the first thing I would say is, you know, with any such thing, mm -hmm. the encouraging words I would use and is how you face up to this is a matter of perspective. Nice. You can use something like this to enslave you. You can use something like this to make you fearful of everything, to be very um, uh, wary of doing anything in life. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, this is one of the big problems that virtually everywhere you look, you know, advertising, uh, news articles, everything enslaves us. There's so much fear. And, or you could use something like that as a way of liberating you, mm. of realizing that, hang on, look, now that tells me, A, I'm mortal. Yep. <laughs> B, I'm going to try and do the things that I enjoy doing because this is it. You know, I, I, I know there's something like this that could happen. And so now I'm going to fill my life and make it more fulfilling. And if you can do that, the good news is, this is a condition which you can get better from, your heart can get better. It should not have any long-term sequelae in terms of predisposing you to dying earlier or anything like that once the heart is healed. Uh, you may still be symptomatic, but most people recover over a period of time. Um, but what it will then allow you to do is it will allow you to concentrate on the things that matter. Mm -hmm. I like it. it. It is, you know, we're all going to be faced with wake up calls. They're going to look different for everybody at different stages of life. And if this is happening to you right now, like you said, I mean, you're above ground. You've already like beaten it in, in a lot of ways. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, perspective is everything and uh, how you move forward and what you learn and learn about yourself is going to be key with this. Yeah. And I think there's a lot, you know, for those people who have had it, uh, they are become great advocates and supporters of other patients, you know, who are going through mm -hmm. a difficult position. And actually that gives them a really good sense of fulfillment, this ability to give back to you and to be able to give back and to support someone and that i think is a is a wonderful um, experience this uh, you know the giving and and experiencing joy in giving and finding that you can use a condition that uh, in some way afflicted your life and using that in a positive way can be very fulfilling Yes, most definitely uh, and you can take your story and maybe inspire somebody else you know that's always you know, when we have hardships and suffering, that's, that's one way through it as well. Um, so we're coming to the end of our session here. Do you have any last minute things you would like to add that's pertinent to this topic? No, I think, uh, I think 
it's always good to keep your eyes open. I think please don't let anyone make you think that, oh, you're mad or you're extra sensitive just because you have ongoing symptoms, mm -hmm. uh, even though they turn around and say, oh, your heart looks okay, because this is something all patients with Takotsubo's experience. And this has been shown to be to correlate with objective markers of exercise capacity and functioning. So just because someone says your heart has become normal doesn't mean you are expected to now be normal. Mm -hmm. You can take your time, but the good news is you will only get better. Wherever you are, training makes you better. Training makes you better. So if you can walk um, 100 meters and collapse because you're tired, that's okay. Try and walk 101 mm -hmm. next week. And if you do that, before you know it, uh, you'll be walking 500. And, and so, you know, I would never you know, the despair comes from the fact that you feel rubbish and everyone says, oh, everything's fine. So, you know, and they don't appreciate what you're going through. Uh, but what you're going through is uh, very valid mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and deserving of uh, attention and compassion from your doctor and everyone else around you as well, because this is not a straightforward, easy kind of finite thing. It does take its time and it varies in person to person. Most definitely. Well, thank you, Dr. Gupta, for coming on my channel today. If this was excellent, and I really hope that it's helped somebody that's watched it and got some helpful information on how to move forward and uh, you know take the lessons learned with this and, and get stronger for it. You know, that's that's all we can do at this point. Um, if you guys like this video, please give it a thumbs up and don't forget to share and subscribe and hit the bell to be alerted to when the next video drops. Thanks for watching. Thanks, Dr. Gupta. Thank you. Thank you so much. All the best.